1: The invasion and occupation of Iraq quickly unraveled the unity Americans found after 9-11.
0: We discuss what happened and what we can learn from it.
1: This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics.
0: No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance.
1: Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are here continuing our series on 9-11 as we begin to tackle the post-9-11 world. We are recording on Saturday due to the holiday weekend, so we're not going to tackle any major news. We're going to skip right to our gratitude section and then focus on the 9-11 series because we figure that will take a while. And because it's been, I hate to say slow news because the second we say that, Beth, we'll have to come on here and be like, beep, 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 breaky news. But for now, we're going to focus on gratitude and continuing our 9-11 series.
0: Well, and we know that four days is basically four years in the way that a lot of our news operates today. So it'll be a different landscape by Tuesday. I will tell you what I'm grateful for, Sarah. I am so happy that so many journalists are tackling the complexity of our attempts to counteract the opioid epidemic. Mm -hmm. I think there have been some really wonderful pieces talking about how, okay, we, are, we really care about this. It's a huge crisis. And a lot of what we're doing is backfiring. And here's how it's backfiring. Look at what happens to people who really need these drugs. Look at the suicides that are happening in the wake of people not being able to get the pain medication that they need. It's a really hard problem. And we've talked about that before. And I'm just grateful that journalists are staying on top of that and following Mm -hmm. the story and not jumping to like this sort of just say no culture. Right. I think people really get that this is a hard one and I'm grateful for it.
1: Me, too. I'm totally grateful for journalists and the work they do in the face of an ever increasing hostile work environment. So on this Labor Day weekend, I am grateful for unions. And I think that during Labor Day, we often talk about the historical impact of unions, and we're all very familiar with the ways in which they changed the ways in which we work. And I think that's really important. But I also want to express gratitude for the ways they continue to impact our world and our lives, despite sort of increasing hostility and opposition. I found this article in The Atlantic that I'll put in the show notes that I've I've been thinking about ever since I read it. It's based on the work of UC Berkeley economist Jesse Rothstein. And what he did was tackle this idea that if more kids graduate from high school and achieve higher scores on standardized tests, then more young people are likely to go to college and in turn land jobs that can secure them spots in the middle class. This idea that, you know, education is the answer to poverty that we've all seemed to agreed upon. Rothstein, however, found little evidence to support that premise. Instead, he found that differences in local labor markets, for example, how similar industries can vary across different communities, and marriage patterns, such as higher concentrations of single-parent households, seem to make much more of a difference than school quality. He concludes that factors like higher minimum wages, the presence and strength of labor unions, and clear career pathways within local industries are likely to play more important roles in facilitating a poor child's ability to rise up the economic ladder when they reach adulthood." And I think that's so important and it's so important to remember. I think you see that the presence of the importance of jobs and gainful employment for parents in LeBron James School and how they emphasize that and the presence of unions in a community help people make more money and get better benefits, even if they're not necessarily in that union industry. It's like a trickle out effect, I guess. And I think that's always so important to remember as we And, you know, no one's saying that education isn't impactful, but the idea that education is the only way to rise a child out of poverty when the importance of the labor market and the strength of labor unions as we celebrate them on this Labor Day weekend is really important to remember. And so I am grateful for labor unions.
0: Next up, we are going to return to our 9-11 series and talk about the invasion and occupation of Iraq. Sarah, as I was preparing to talk about the invasion of Iraq, I realized that what really needs to happen is like a slow burn type entire podcast devoted to the decision to invade Iraq, because I think most of us have our memories beginning when we invaded Iraq and not that period from 9-11 to when we invaded, which was a long time. So we didn't invade Iraq until March of 2003, On the day of September 11th, the president said to the nation, we're at war. Almost immediately, everybody in our government understood that Al-Qaeda was probably behind the 9-11 attack. And so that night at 8.30, when the president addressed the nation, he said, we will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. And something that I realized throughout the course of this research That I just hadn't thought about before is the challenge of retaliating against an entity that's not another country. And I think that's why we so quickly said, we're going after countries too, because countries had to be involved here and we sort of don't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. And I want to make a quick note. We're going to come back to what happened in the United States next week. So our domestic responses. But I wanted to note here that almost immediately, the Immigration and Naturalization Service started arresting people for immigration violations as the FBI began its investigation of 9-11. So that's something we're going to come back to. But I think it's a theme, especially as we start to understand how 9-11 is still very present with us in our understanding of immigration. So the National Security Council principals gathered right after 9-11. Everybody is at Camp David, and there's immediately a focus on the countries harboring terrorists because they decided that day that the goal was the elimination of terrorism as a threat to our way of life, way beyond the scope of retaliating against al-Qaeda or bringing the terrorists to justice. We immediately said, we're going to wipe terrorism off the face of the earth.
1: And while I do appreciate big goals, I do not appreciate impossible ones.
0: Yeah, and I think I've been thinking about that because it sounded ridiculous to me when I read it. I also can sort of understand something this awful happening on your watch and feeling like this can never happen again and and just going to this place of how can we ensure this will never, ever happen again? But certainly in retrospect, that sounds like an impossible goal. So we start looking at things like, how can we use every tool at our disposal? We wanted to use sanctions, diplomacy, intelligence, the military, and the first thing that really started to happen was securing Pakistan's help in turning the Taliban against Al Qaeda, which shows that that our government did understand what was happening. They did understand that Al Qaeda was being propped up by the Taliban in some ways, that the bulk of this energy was in Afghanistan, and that Pakistan was an important factor in al-Qaeda's success as well. And so we made seven requests of Pakistan right away through diplomatic channels. We said, you have to stop al-Qaeda at your border and end all of your logistical support for Osama bin Laden. You have to give the United States blanket Overflight and landing rights and access for us militarily in terms of intelligence, you have to share intelligence with us, you have to publicly condemn terrorist acts, and you have to cut off all shipments of fuel to the Taliban and stop recruits from leaving Pakistan to go to Afghanistan. If evidence points to al-Qaeda... As responsible for the attacks and the Taliban continues to harbor al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, you have to break all relations with the Taliban. And the United States said, Pakistan, if you don't do these seven things, we're going to come after you. And Mm. so Pakistan said, we will do these seven things. Okay. (laughs) So President Bush, according to his testimony at the 9-11 Commission, wanted to immediately strike the Taliban. And then step back to see if the Taliban got the message and and turned over the al-Qaeda leadership and then hit them harder if they didn't. He realized that he would need ground troops to do this. But all of the options for ground troops in Afghanistan were really bad. So the CIA steps in and says, we have some options for you. Let us send teams into Afghanistan to work with local warlords who are turning against al-Qaeda. And Bush said that when George Tenet proposed that, it represented a real turning point in his thinking, and he realized that 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 was probably a better way to deal with the Taliban than taking U.S. ground troops into Afghanistan. So they envisioned a phased response to this. Phase one was issuing an ultimatum to the Taliban and then planning to attack if the Taliban rejected that ultimatum. Then... They would do that attack if needed, and then phase three would be sort of the security phase. And we all sort of know how Afghanistan turned out from here. So we understood that Afghanistan was the center of this from the beginning, but immediately President Bush had questions about Iraq President Bush was a former pilot, and he was very struck by how sophisticated the September 11th attacks were. And he just had this gut instinct that Iraq might have been involved in providing at least training or support. It's also important to remember at this time that Iraq is on everybody's radar, During the Clinton administration, our Congress passed legislation making it the official policy of the United States to support regime change in Iraq. That legislation did not authorize military action in Iraq to facilitate regime change, but it said we in the United States want to see Saddam Hussein overthrown. The international community was putting pressure on Saddam Hussein. There were major concerns about his development of things like anthrax. And he wasn't complying with weapons inspections. So it's not weird that we immediately said, could Iraq have had a role here? But a September 18th memo said there was no compelling case that Iraq had planned or perpetrated the attacks. There were some thin anecdotal accounts of Saddam Hussein and people from the Iraqi government interacting with al-Qaeda members. But the overwhelming majority of evidence showed that bin Laden really, really disliked Saddam Hussein's government because it was so secular. And this just didn't seem like an alliance that made sense. No reporting could be confirmed on those anecdotal accounts. um, And just nothing supported the fact that Saddam Hussein had been cooperating with bin Laden on unconventional weapons. Nevertheless, members of the Bush administration particularly Donald Rumsfeld, wanted to hit Iraq at the same time as bin Laden and ask for military options to do so. And Rumsfeld in particular said he wanted options to hit more than just, quote, empty training sites. I think that the reason he was in this frame of mind, now I'm gonna try to describe this graciously. I will tell you that I harbor a lot of resentment for Rumsfeld and some other members of the administration. So full disclosure, (laughs) I have feelings about this. What I'm trying to understand in the context is that the Gulf War that happened in the 90s, while it seemed like a success on the front end, ended very badly. And you had in Washington, D.C., A whole lot of people who were part of the George H.W. Bush administration who had been involved in the Gulf War and who had a ton of regret about not removing Saddam Hussein at that time. And that wasn't just ego and it wasn't just revenge because Saddam Hussein had tried and failed to assassinate George H.W. Bush. It was also that tens of thousands of Kurds and Shiites had been slaughtered in the aftermath of that war, that Saddam Hussein continued to kill his own people, that he continued to be a threat in the region. And so the mindset of we failed to deal with this problem the first time, it is time now to deal with it, was very prevalent as everybody's looking at this. Okay, the national security team worried, even when it had information that Iraq wasn't behind the attacks, they worried that Iraq would take advantage of the attacks, that it would see America as weak, and that this would be the moment that Saddam Hussein would really make his move. A Department of Defense report around this time period in the week after September 11th identified Iraq, the Taliban and Al Qaeda as strategic threats to the United States. And remember, we said immediately that the goal was the elimination of all terrorism. So we never had the goal of just dealing with what happened on 9-11 and the perpetrators of that. We said we want all terrorism gone. And so we put Iraq in the category of a threat to the United States. At first, President Bush was very resistant to doing anything with Iraq. When he met with Tony Blair on September 20th, Tony Blair was asking about Iraq because, again, Iraq was on everybody's radar. And Bush said Iraq is not the immediate problem, that others in his administration disagreed, but that he was a decision maker. And he denied multiple requests for planning military options to invade Iraq at that time. On September 20th, he addressed Congress. He blamed al-Qaeda publicly for 9-11. And for the first time, he blamed al-Qaeda for the attack on the USS Cole. At that point, no one had publicly said al-Qaeda was responsible for that attack from the United States. He publicly stated the ultimatum that our State Department had privately delivered to the Taliban. And here is a quote from his speech. He said, they will hand over terrorists or they will share their fate. He also said the enemy of America is not our many Muslim friends. It is not our many Arab friends.
1: Our enemy is a radical network of terrorists and every government that supports them. Every nation in every region
0: now has a decision to make either you are with us or you are with the terrorists he called this civilizations fight and so the united states began operation enduring freedom in afghanistan it wasn't until november that president bush started asking for possible military options in iraq and again At this point, the information Bush has in front of him is Saddam Hussein has sponsored terrorism in the past. He has invaded four other countries in the Middle East. He is killing his own people. You know, he's acting as a brutal dictator. He had offered bounties for suicide bombers, families, and he had praised the 9-11 attacks. And he was in violation of U.N. sanctions and resolutions. There was a major concern as well about oil. I think a lot of people believe that the invasion of Iraq was a blood for oil situation. And I completely understand that perspective. One thing to note about that is that the United States' interest in oil at first was the recognition that Saddam Hussein was sitting on lots and lots of money that he could take advantage of to build out weapons. So I'm not saying that there there weren't capitalist interests involved. I'm saying there weren't only capitalist interests involved, according to my research. And there was consensus in the international community that Iraq was a really bad actor. So in November of 2002, a UN security Resolution was unanimously adopted. Even Syria agreed with this security resolution. And it said Saddam Hussein had a final opportunity to comply with his disarmament obligations. Now, there was major controversy over this resolution at its passage because only the United States and the United Kingdom really wanted an automatic consequence for breach of this resolution. Russia and France in particular said, we are not on board with that. We are not making this resolution and saying we're going to war if Iraq violates it. And that's really what the United Mm -hmm. States and the UK wanted. So the compromise position was a strongly worded resolution that made lots of requirements of Saddam Hussein. And he agreed initially to some of those requirements and made some reports but ultimately failed aspects of it. And, and the international community remained really concerned, but most of that community wanted to continue to try diplomatic efforts to deal with the fear about the weapons he was sitting on. And in March of 2003, the United States, with very limited international support, invaded Iraq. Iraq. I think one of the critical mistakes, Sarah, that the Bush administration made was only talking about weapons of mass destruction with the American public, because I think that they didn't trust the American public to understand All of the history and all of the complexity that led the United States to invade Iraq, even though Iraq was not behind the 9-11 attacks. Now, first, I believe that there were people in the Bush administration who just never accepted the facts that Iraq wasn't behind the 9-11 attacks. I think this is a classic case of confirmation bias. I think that the Bush administration did not pay attention to information that contradicted its initial view of Iraq that had been developing since the 90s for many members of that administration, for probably all of them, right? Everybody was alive, and and that Gulf War was very present, and there was so much regret about it. And I think they didn't trust the American people to understand all of that. And so they ignored the intelligence that wasn't helpful to them, focused on the intelligence that was. And went to the American people with what they thought was their home run argument. The phrase slam dunk is used multiple times in government documents from this period. The idea that Saddam Hussein might have weapons of mass destruction, which meant chemical weapons, biological weapons, nuclear weapons, that there were stockpiles in Iraq of these weapons, and that's why Saddam Hussein had to be removed. I think that's why the public overwhelmingly supported this war when it happened, why this war was supported on a bipartisan basis overwhelmingly in Congress. I mean, this is a war that Congress authorized and there was very little opposition at the time.
1: We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's help, com slash pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames I have one in my office I have one in my kitchen I have given one as a housewarming gift I have given one as Mother's Day Father's Day they are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer in my personal opinion in digital frames it makes it so so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos it plays like you're in Harry Potter you guys it is the best I love mine so much And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
0: So you can understand how we got here and you can also understand the very egregious mistakes in how we got here. The, the goals that were too ambitious, the baggage that was brought by the principals making these decisions, it's almost like they relied on too recent history that was too personal in getting here. And it was just a perfect storm of factors that took us into Iraq and what happened next has us all convinced years later that this was a just tragic mistake.
1: I don't think it's that they didn't trust the American people. I think they knew the American people very well and that that would not have been a good enough reason for them. And I think they knew that they had a short window to exploit um, the fervor for action after 9-11. Because for better or for worse, I mean, it was su- it's the largest terrorist attack on our soil in our nation's history. And so... It might seem like not a a year or so might not seem like that long. But like, remember, there was always the the threats and the colors and the like it was still very fresh. And I think they understood if we don't do this now, we won't get to. And we have to I think that you're being much more generous than I'm willing to be. I don't think it was uh, we have to, you know, we have to give them a, a really good reason because we can't trust them to see the complexity. I think they knew. It won't be good enough to justify sending their children into a war zone to die because we don't like the mess we left. And I think what frustrates me so much about this generation of leadership, and I'm going to go ahead and include John McCain in this because we talked about this a little bit with him. I don't understand, you know, if Vietnam, if the Vietnam War had been 200 years ago and we had several generations who just don't understand what that was like and what happened, then maybe I would be able to give a little more grace. But these men lived through that. They understood the complexities of modern warfare. They understood that things weren't black and white, that we were not we were no longer living in World War II, that it wasn't so simple as just going in and taking out leadership, be it communist or otherwise, that you don't like. And people die. And it's a quagmire. And I don't understand why they still perpetuated this idea that we just wear the good guys in the white hats and we come in and we fix things. I mean, even if they saw how wrong it went the first time with the Gulf War and much less the Vietnam War, I don't understand why they continue in this ego driven, purposefully limited way of like modern warfare. I just don't understand. I really, really don't. I don't look how they looked at their own life experiences and thought, This is a good idea. I just don't. It blows my mind. It really does. I guess it's just groupthink on crack is the only thing I can come up with.
0: Well, I think it's groupthink. I think it is ego. I think it's also an inability to grapple with a world that has inherent danger built in because Vietnam should have been present for all of these folks. But remember, We talked about Operation Desert Storm in America as a resounding success. The American military was back, right? And we can just go in quickly and do what we need to do and get out. And I think that the story these folks were telling themselves is we should have just finished the job with Desert Storm. Instead of going in and doing something on a limited purpose like we did, we should have stayed and dealt with all of the fallout from it. And so... Think about all the mistakes you're feeling if you're one of these. And again, I don't I think that they were badly, badly, badly wrong here. So I'm not trying to say I'm not trying to be defensive of any of these actions. I'm just trying to learn from them. And I think that what's in your mind if you're in this time period is regret about that. Regret about the fact that you've just had the worst attack in our history on our soil on your watch And feeling like, I have got to do something about this, right? And I don't have another country to go hit. I've just gotten a kind of war that I don't understand. I got to do something. What can I do? And what I can do is going to be influenced by all the baggage I'm carrying from the Gulf War And all of the conversation we're having in the world about Iraq. I mean, Iraq was more on our minds than Iran at that point as a big, scary actor in the Middle East. And I think about if something if we had something, God forbid, like 9-11 in our country today, I think we would be thinking about North Korea and Iran the way we were thinking about Iraq at that time, even if there was no evidence to tie either of them to what happened in our country right? Because when you don't know what to do, you go to the shortest cuts your brain can make.
1: And I think another reason I'm so frustrated listening to this is my experience of this march to war was very different than i'm not just taking it in the mass media narrative i was literally in my senior seminar class during this and the emphasis of our senior political seminar class was basically we always do this and it ends badly like it wasn't surrounding yeah. the iraq war but like this was the this was what we were learning was how we do yep. this and why it ends badly every stinking time. And so it was incredibly frustrating and disheartening to be learning this while watching us make the same mistake again. It was so, knowing people were going to die, Americans were going to die, Iraqis were going to die. It's It was heartbreaking. And it's so infuriating. It's just infuriating. Well, and what's
0: what I think is even more infuriating is that where we would we would respond the same way today if something like this happened mm. even with all these lessons i still think we would respond the same way today because in the context of an academic conversation or a conversation like the one we're having it is much easier to sit with the lessons of history to accept some danger in the world to wholly look at the picture and say maybe there isn't something we can do right now that makes us all feel better and that actually makes a difference than people who feel responsible singularly almost for keeping the country safe and feeling like they failed to do it and now somebody's got to pay for that.
1: I think honestly some of it too, and I would lay this squarely in the lap of George W. Bush. I think that's why he was able to be exploited by the – um priorities of people like Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney, I think it is a inherently sort of American evangelical Christian perspective that there's always a reason, right? Bad things happen, but there's always a purpose. There's a bigger cause behind them. And I think, and he said so many times that you know, we're going to bring democracy to this area. Like something good is going to come out of this terrible thing that happened to our country. Yeah. And yeah. it's going to be that we're going to bring freedom and democracy to the Middle East. Well, sometimes, well, first of all, I wish we'd taken the British World War II approach. If we want to bring something good out of something bad, I wish it would have been like, I don't know, something for Americans like healthcare. care. But that, I think it was this drive to like create a bright spot out of this terrible act. So we're going to bring democracy to the Middle East.
0: I think that's right, and I think that goes back to there were too many goals here, because we talked about we we wanted retribution for what happened, we also wanted no terrorism ever again, right, and we wanted to say loudly and clear, mm-hmm. clearly to the world, you will not touch the United States, or you will pay severely. But also we want to do the right thing. And we feel like we didn't do the right thing in the Gulf War. We came in and did what we were there to do. And then we left and look at all of the terrible things that happened and look at how many people are dying. And we hate that. And so we're going to come in and fix it this time. And it was just an incredible hubris to think that we could accomplish all those objectives. And I think that there were things behind that. I mean, look, when I part of the reason I wanted to share some of the George W. Bush remarks from that era is you can just hear – This sort of soaring movie president language of look at everything the United States can do. You're with us or against us. I mean, we we just had no perspective in the moment. And the perspective that we had was ill-informed and was coming from a place of deep emotion instead of an understanding of what our capabilities were.
1: Well, incredible hubris is an excellent transition into the occupation of Iraq. When I was doing my research for the occupation, I read Imperial Life in the Emerald City Inside Iraq's Green Zone by Rajiv Chandrasikharan, I hope I pronounced his name right. It's an excellent book, if you like to be mad all the time. Um, and he breaks it into two pieces that I think are so illustrative of the mistakes made of the incredible hubris. And honestly, reading about the attitude of the occupation... It's it's it makes it even more difficult to give any sort of understanding to the occupation, because if if there was even a an iota of we screwed it up the first time, we're going to do better this time. It sure didn't it sure didn't show in their occupation plans. I mean, the main occupation plans were we're going to we're going to trust all these expats from Iraq. It's going to be cool. We're going to do shock and awe. And then we're just going to walk in the next day or a week later, or two, and, and everybody will be so glad Saddam's gone, we're going to hand over the keys to these expats, and freedom and democracy will reign. Well, surprise, surprise, it didn't work like that. We did shock and awe, and then there was massive looting, the burning of government buildings, the destruction of infrastructure that was already in terrible shape because Saddam Hussein had these terrible sanctions. And so they, the the infrastructure had already been put on the back burner and there were all these, you know, I'm not saying anything really revolutionary when I say Saddam Hussein wasn't great at running the country. Okay, like he was propping up his people. He was pissing off the rest of the world. So everything was already sort of degraded. And so the idea that we were just going to walk in and give the keys to another group and everything would be great was ridiculously over optimistic. And then we would do things like we came in and we rerouted the whole traffic of the city to protect our green zone, to protect our people. Because the green zone surrounded the Republic Palace, like Saddam's main palace and all these villas surrounding it. And we wanted to kind of come in and issue all these proclamations and then it'd be true. One of my favorite quotes in the first, in the entire book is, freedom, democracy and rights are not magical words. You don't get to just come in and say, "Okay, you're free now. Let democracy reign. Here are these proclamations saying this is a democratic government. Holla. Like, it doesn't work like that. And that's what we did. It was so. It was so ego driven and not only ego driven by the part of the United States, but they were fighting amongst themselves. So Rumsfeld and the Defense Department wanted to put this one expat in charge. Well, Donald Rumsfeld and Condoleezza Rice didn't want that so they would just try to keep things from each other. Well, we won't let our plan we won't make any plans because if we make plans, well then the state department might find out about it and they'll try to shut them down. So we'll just go in secretly and figure it all out as when we get there. Literally. These were some of the plans.
0: It doesn't surprise me to hear that honestly because that's how it was all operating in the lead up to 9/11. That's part of why we missed it, right? We had all these actors in Washington who didn't trust each other. And we're just trying to preserve mm-hmm. their piece of the pie and and part of that look with with graciousness toward human beings, part of that is everybody had this big crusading vision of themselves and thought that they best knew how to deal with this oh. problem. But gosh, like somewhere along the way, somebody should have said, "You
1: know, maybe this isn't the right approach." Well, and here's the thing: there were lots of people saying that. <laughs> There were so many people, experts saying, this is not how you do an occupation. This is not how you change a country. But they didn't want experts. They wanted loyalists. They wanted people loyal to George Bush and the administration who were going to drink the Kool-Aid. I mean, there's these ridiculous stories where you have experts in post-occupation education. And they're like, "Mm, yeah, but you don't have enough pictures with the president. So we're going to hire this guy who's never done this before. And listen, some of these people immediately saw, like, we're not doing the right thing and tried their best, even the loyalists. And still, we're facing this uphill battle. I mean, there's so many things. You know, they, they came in and they purged the Ba'athists, which were Saddam Hussein's party. But here's the problem with that. What do you think people do when there's a dictatorship and the dictator has a party to survive? They join the party. Mm-hmm. So when they purged the Ba'athists, they purged everyone, including the people who knew how to run the government departments. They dissolve the army. Well, what happens when you dissolve the army? You have a lot of trained soldiers with nothing to do who are now pissed off. Like it's just the short-sightedness of it all. And they would play political favorites and they would they would fire experts. And they were obsessed with proving that all these conservative ideologies were the way to save the country. So they wanted to privatize all the government industries in like three months. They wanted to change the way the stock exchange Worked. They wanted all these, you know, one of the parts of the book that just infuriated me. So there's a viceroy that they put in charge of Iraq, um, because there's all this debate about how we should, should we have an election before a constitution? Should we have a constitution before an election? Who should be, how do we select I mean, it's hard. How do you select who's going to vote for the first time? Like, how do you break them up into sections? They had—and they really—what was one of the surprising parts of the book to me is they really wanted to focus on the religious makeup between the Sunnis, the Shiites, and the Kurds. And the Iraqis were like, you know, we really feel like a country now. We want—Iraq is our top priority, so stop treating us as factions, which was I thought was really interesting. And they wanted to, you know, overly punish— the Saddam faction, which was not, which just created animosity, which just created a fertile breeding ground for, you know, terrorism and anti-government action. One of my the parts where I'm so furious, that made me so mad, when they're, they're talking to Bremer, the viceroy selected by Bush to run the occupation. And he's saying, they're asking him about his biggest accomplishments. And he said, oh, well, it was lowering Iraq's tax rate the liberalization of foreign investment laws, and the reduction of import duties. Seriously? Seriously. Those are your biggest successes? These people don't have electricity. And that's what you're proud of? It was this emphasis on, we have to show that this this works. We have to prove that this conservative approach of dealing with private industry and privatization and low tax rates and not because there was, you know, under Saddam's government, there were massive amounts of like the welfare state was huge. Everybody got subsidized gas. Everybody got food allocations. And they were like, we're just going to shut these off and move to the American system. Well, it doesn't you can't do that. And there were all these experts saying you can't do that. But they said, I mean, their argument was basically, you know, not only did they want to get in quickly, and out quickly and think that it was going to be great. But they knew, like I said, that's why I doubt their this idea of like, we really just wanted to clean up the mess from last time. They knew they had a short leash. They knew that they had sold this based on something that was becoming not true if they didn't arguably already know it wasn't true. And they knew that they couldn't spend a lot of money because they told people we're going to go into Iraq and we're going to fund all this democracy based on their oil reserves. And it wasn't enough. And instead of looking at the American people and saying, you know what, we screwed up. And it's going to take way, way more money than we thought it was. They just, you know, sort of were like, well, we're just going to get out and they'll figure it out. Well, how did that end? You know, <laughs> it just the it's like a, it's like a walk through how not to be a leader. It's so discouraging not to and I'm not even going to get into the bankrolling of Halliburton and Blackwater and the I mean the stories of well we were we were paying Halliburton hundreds of millions of dollars to go get gas from Kuwait meanwhile The Iraqis have all this oil like it just it's so infuriating. And they're all living in this in this green zone, in this gated palace with hamburgers and french fries and posters about how great George Bush is never letting Iraqis in. And the Iraqis who do come in, are they going to say anything and criticize? No, because they're one of the few Iraqis who have good jobs interpreting or doing anything for the Americans. And, you know, as it starts to slowly crumble and the attacks start to breach the gates and they realize how badly they screwed it up. And s- instead of owning it and saying, we've screwed up, we're going to try another approach, they just perpetuate the mistakes or make them worse by refusing to acknowledge their mistakes, by refusing to let in experts, by refusing to spend the money needed to help the country after we had bombed the heck out of it and killed thousands of Iraqis. It's just, it's so infuriating. It's so infuriating.
0: I agree with everything that you've said. I think that what I want to be sure of in my own processing of all of this is to both acknowledge flawed human beings, in some cases, just bad actors, but not take the easy out of, well, these were just the wrong people. Because everything that you just described could happen again. I mean, if you think about the arrogance of this administration our current administration is 10 times this right we just haven't had a war yet and i say yet because i believe we will have one under this president absent a a massive shift in our congress in november i can just imagine us repeating all of these mistakes and and i think that part of what we have to learn as a public is we have to adopt a different mindset also We have to get out of the flag waving America is going to go kick everybody's ass mentality because that is what created the situation in Iraq. When you talk about people sitting in palaces eating French fries, that sounds exactly like the America of 2018.
1: I don't know if I totally agree with that. I think that 16 years of headlines, even if they are not the body filled airplanes of Vietnam that they saw in the news, I think people understand we are still there. We are spending money We don't want to spend People are We are. People are dying We don't want them to die In Afghanistan and Iraq I think people get like This is This is a forever war And we don't want to be A part of it anymore In a way that they didn't Into Like I can't imagine Them coming to the American people Considering our presence Still in Afghanistan and Iraq And saying Okay We got another place We want to go I mean I, And I think that it, While I do I do agree That there are Fundamental Human errors Groupthink, confirmation bias—that happened here. I do think there are different approaches. I do think that Barack Obama, Jimmy Carter—there are presidents who take fundamentally different approaches to foreign policy and who refuse and take a lot of heat. I'm mean, particularly Jimmy Carter for Jimmy Carter for saying, "I'm not going to do this. I don't. I'm not going to play to the patriotism." I mean, he could have absolutely dropped some bombs during that hostage crisis, and he said, "No, we're not doing this." I mean, it's not. It's the idea is if you're president, and I know this is super silly to say this right now considering our current president, but I do think there are presidents in the past who've risen to the challenge and said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, fall into the trap of patriotic warmongering. I'm not going to be a hawk. I'm going to do what's right, even if it's unpopular. And if I can't sell it to the American pop- people, then I'll just take the heat. And I think that is possible. I think we've had leaders in the past who've done that. And... I just think that if if we put it yes, absolutely the American people are responsible. But I think we also have to high, hold our leaders to a higher standard and say like I, listen, listen. I think that George W. Bush was not a nefarious bad actor in the way that George that Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld were. I think they had bad motivations. Bad bad Money making you name it motivations. and I don't think george bush was like that, but I think george bush was a very Bad leader and a very bad president for not standing up for them For not taking the heat for not fa- and maybe it's because of like I said that sort of I want to make something good out of that And I can see why that is like I said, I don't think he's a bad Person on an individual level. I think he was trying to do the right thing But some people are just not up for the gig and I don't think he was. I just don't. I mean, he said it. He said, I didn't run to be a wartime president. That's not what I wanted to do. But like, you don't get to pick, man. And like, you need to rise to the challenge. And for better or for worse, I think history has already decided that he did not. He did not.
0: And I think it's important to realize it was it was a new challenge. It wasn't mm-hmm. the same kind of decision that Jimmy Carter faced. It, these were This was a brand new landscape. It was something that no one had confronted before. And so I, I give him a lot of grace because of that. And I also think that it was incredibly foolish the way the United States began this process. And many of the things that happened after, I think, were terrible errors in judgment and were terrible errors in motivation and what I mean when I say the American public has to take responsibility, it is exactly what you said of holding our leaders responsible and supporting our leaders who approach these things differently. Now, I do not fully embrace the foreign policy of President Obama as a completely different way because the Obama administration dropped a lot of bombs. They just didn't turn into wars. But we used a lot of weapons in drone attacks. I mean, we, we, we haven't yet figured out what our role is in the world. That is my perspective. But when our voting public embraces the ideology of President Trump, it makes me feel like a substantial portion of our country, certainly not everyone, but a substantial portion of our country has returned to this very shallow notion of what patriotism means that is exactly what brought us to these horrible places in Iraq. And I I fear that because we are once again in this loyalty mindset And loyalty on steroids, right, to the president. For the president and his supporters, that is where we are now. I fear that if he took us into a war, we would be right back into this same kind of decision-making.
1: I don't know. I feel like his populism is fueled so much by isolationism and so much about our priorities. We don't care about the rest of the world. That would be a harder—I'm harder. not saying it's impossible, but it feels a little bit different to me than post-9-11— I hope that you're right. I, I really do. And I think that, you know, with George Bush, too, I just look back and I'm like, I think it just took him too long to, like, trust, because I think it would have gone very differently had he said from the beginning, you know, trusted the advice of Condi Rice and Colin Powell and looked to them and empowered them. And stood up to Rumsfeld and Cheney. I think it took it. Listen, I think they hate each other to this day because he knows it took him too long mm-hmm. to stand up to those two and to say, uh-uh, no. You know, I think he was just, I think he was too easily manipulated by them. And it took him too long to be like, okay, these are the people I trust. And I don't think, you know, Condi Rice and, and Colin Powell are not blameless. But I think if they, if he had trusted their leadership and their advice and, and, and really been steering the ship from that basis, we'd be in a very different place.
0: familial relationships in Washington, D.C., not just the familial relationship of George W. Bush and George H. W. Bush, but all of the people who served in both administrations. And I think that one of the things that this has really made me wrestle with is how do you value experience and baggage? And -hmm. how do you safeguard? Because you want experience And you want to have guardrails against all the baggage that comes with experience. And and how could we more effectively do that? And I think that's a really difficult question, especially when there are so few people in the world who really have the experience to serve in the White House.
1: I think the problem isn't the valuation of experience. But it's the the opposition to any form of debate. It's the. We have to all be we have to present a united front instead of treating the political parties like they're supposed to, which is we make each other stronger because we have to face the other side. It's we have to keep it a secret. We can't give them a single win. We can't give them a single point. We can't let them know a single thing because then they'll use it against us as opposed to bring it.
0: Yeah. A culture of healthy debate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to like, you know what, like total not to be like all Hamilton up in here, but like. Jefferson Adams, Jefferson Hamilton, like, I'm not scared of your debate because I think my case is stronger. So bring it like that's what Washington, D.C. is supposed to be, not factions who try to keep secrets from each other so they can win the day. It's supposed to be. I mean, that's what I think that's what George Washington anticipated and feared. But in theory, you know, if they if they had listened to the not just Democrats, but opposing factions inside their own party. And and said, I you know what you can say that, and we and I will have a good answer for you. It was, don't you dare! I have to win the media cycle. I can't have any opposition. Loyalist, loyalist, loyalist. That's all that matters. And I think there is, you know, if there, I think you see, it's really interesting. I'm listening to Slow Burn, the second season about the Bill Clinton impeachment, and they were just talking about how the the friends of Bill, all the people who came from Arkansas, like the DC elite, could not stand them because they were different, because they didn't have to, you know. Because they weren't the elite, because they weren't in the club, right? And so I think it's interesting. I think you have two different levels of this. You have sort of the party elites and the D.C. elites that can be both parties and outsiders that come in and kind of pressure. And I think what you see with the Iraq occupation and the Iraq war is that it was just too, there were not enough outsider perspectives. I wish George Bush had brought some more people from Texas with him to just be like, You know, that's not how we do things in Texas. I don't care how you do them in D.C. We're going to think about this differently. Like there wasn't enough outside the Beltway perspective, much less, you know, opposing Republican and Democratic viewpoints.
0: I think that's right, because, again, we invaded with bipartisan consensus that it was the right thing to do. It was as things progressed that we started to have deep divisions. And at no point did we have really healthy conflict. So I I think that's a good point that you that you want to bring that experience and the way you safeguard against the baggage is open, healthy conflict within the administration.
1: And instead of saying in a post 9-11 months, the stakes are so high. This was such an act of aggression on our country and people's lives were lost and people's lives are at risk. That we have to get this right and we will debate it until we cannot debate it anymore. We said, oh, no, you don't love this country unless you get in line because the stakes are so high. If you don't love this country and you don't understand, then you don't care about 9-11. So get in line. You know, it was instead of an opening up of. This was so terrible. Everyone needs to be heard. So we reached the right conclusion. It was if you're not a patriot, if you don't support this war.
0: Yeah, which again, kind of brings me back to what's the present day application? We've just, we have to stop that. We have to stop that. We have to stop the the machinations within the Bush administration. Remind me so much of the McConnell approach to the Senate. Ugh, we we just we just have to be. But it's kind of comes back to, like, the central premise of our show, which is, like, we need these differing perspectives. Before we started recording today, Sarah and I had a pretty vigorous debate about the value of unions because, you know, Sarah said, my gratitude mom is going to be unions. And I said, I'm not grateful for unions, and here's why. And we talk about it. And we're still friends, and we're still on the same page, and we don't have to agree. But I think we both think better because of that opposition In the next installment in this series, we're going to talk more about the domestic ramifications of the post-9-11 world, which which go to very dark places because of that absence of healthy conflict. But between now and then next Tuesday, we are going to do a memorial episode about 9-11 because that podcast will air on September 11th with some sound from the actual 9-11 memorial in New York.
1: Up next, we're going to share what's on our mind outside politics. Beth, what's on your mind outside politics?
0: We saw Crazy Rich Asians, and I know you saw it. I watched your Instagram story about it. And you loved it, right? Loved it.
1: I'm I'm here for the rom-com revival. I'm here for it. I've seen like three rom-coms in the last month.
0: I really enjoyed the first 30 minutes or so of it. It was so different, and I was transported with it. And I loved the filming of it. I loved all the the color and the patterns, and I loved this brilliant scene where the the main characters are in a restaurant and somebody sends a text message about seeing them. And you see that text message travel all over the world. And the way that was done, I thought, was so brilliant. So there were many, many things I liked about it. I felt like it settled into a rom-com at some point in a way that I got bored with. But overall, I mean, I definitely think it's worth seeing.
1: I thought that – I mean, I understand definitely, Like it, you know, there's still a couple – there's a threat to their relationship, you want them to get together or else it's not a rom-com. I thought the overlay of all the culture and I thought particularly the conflict between the girlfriend and the mother because of the cultural um, sort of framework built around it was really interesting. And so I really, really loved that part of it. And I thought that's what made it so much more interesting than your just average sort of white people rom-com. Um, I loved it. I thought it was really brilliant. And I've got the book now because you can tell from the movie that there's like so many more characters and so much more backstory that's really fascinating.
0: There were definitely characters I was more interested in than the protagonist. And I think this is my thing with rom-coms and why I have always loved a very specific type of romantic comedy. And that type is one that happens way past engagement wedding stage. I like romantic comedies about the staying together, not the getting together, Mm -hmm. and about how messy and complicated and weird and ultimately beautiful it is way down the road. I just, you know, honestly, in this movie, I think I would have thought it was better if it hadn't ended so neatly.
1: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. What are you talking about? Of course they had to get together. Well, that's not even true, though. I mean, listen, they were staying together. They'd already been together for two years. Remember? Like, this was like a challenge to their ongoing relationship. I'm just saying.
0: Yeah. Listen, everything after the wedding is harder than what comes before it. and (laughs) That's the part I'm interested in.
1: Well, I watched All the Boys I've Loved Before last night on Netflix, another rom-com, teenage rom-com. Oh, it was so cute. Made me feel a little old. A little old. John Corbett's the dad. Felt a little old about that. (laughs) I felt a little old by all the Delia's fashion coming back around. But that's okay. Like there was like crush velvet, legit crush velvet skirts and stuff. Um, But I loved it. I also wanted to give everyone an update on my stomach, which is much better because it turns out I was taking a supplement the whole time that was upsetting me. So glad I spent all the money testing all the things to find out it was a dang supplement upsetting my stomach. Oh, I guess I should just be thankful it's something easily fixed, but it's frustrating.
0: I can understand both of those feelings, and I am happy that it's something easily fixed so that you can be out of this.
1: I'm happily I'm eating normally before before we take our trip to New York City. That's what I'm happy about.
0: Which we will be doing. So if you aren't following us on Instagram, you should do that because I'm sure we will get lots of stories coming at you from our trip to New York next weekend. On Friday, you're going to hear from another woman running for office. We talked with Crystal Quaid, who is running in Missouri for the legislature for re-election to the Missouri State Legislature. I think you will really enjoy hearing from her. On the Nuanced Life this week, we're talking with Christina Martin in a beautiful exploration of kind of power and authenticity and living your best life. So, I hope you enjoy hearing from both of those guests. Hope you had a wonderful Labor Day weekend. Thank you for all of your support and keep it nuanced, y'all.
1: Pantsuit Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music.
0: Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tracy Putoff, George Niedermeyer, James Randall, Cherry Haas,
1: Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash Politics. You can connect with us on our website,
0: www.pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly emails and follow us on Instagram.